call my friends the word of God. How thankful we are for it. That in the Bible, God has given to us everything we need for life and godliness. In the Bible, everything is needed that whereby we might be equipped to do the works of God. The word of God in that regard is in every sense sufficient for every period of human history and every stage of human life. Every period of human history, there was God in the beginning. And what was God doing? He spoke the word into existence, his word. There was God throughout all the epochs of human history, directing and guiding by his word. Here you are this morning, some of us older, some of us younger, and I'm saying to you that no matter what stage of life you're in, the Word of God is valuable to you. The Word of God is necessary for you. The Word of God is that which you need to guide your life. For those of you who are young here this morning, the Word of God is that which you can build your life upon. For those of us who are maybe in middle age, the Word of God is that in which we can guide to our closing days. To those of us who are elderly, The word of God is that which will bring you safe into your father's arms. And so the word of God, a great blessing to the church of Jesus Christ and how we thank God for his word and how we want to exalt and give praise to God for his word. One of the things that I've been hoping to do as I've been coming here more and more and, and becoming now a part of the church as I've in these first few weeks here, I've wanted to give some emphasis to what I believe are very important elements of the Christian faith. This is why the week before last, we took a look at the idea of Christ as preeminent in the church. You remember that passage of scripture from Romans 8, verse 29, how that God has saved us in order that Jesus Christ might be the firstborn among many brethren. And we talked about the exaltation of Jesus Christ. But do you remember how we also spoke about the elevation of individuals in the whole realm of salvation? Christ is to be exalted But in the glory of Christ being exalted, the people of God are elevated. It's a wonderful truth. But the primary truth that we try to stress is essentially this. That in all things in the church, Jesus Christ is to have the preeminence. He is the Lord who reigns over all. He is in this place to be exalted. And I set that message before you purposely because it is my hope and my desire. If I can say it this way, my ministry here, I hope to be a Christ-exalting ministry. I hope when all is said and done, Christ is exalted in the hearts of each and every one of us. This week, what I want to do then is I want to take a look at what I believe is another foundational reality in the life of the church. And that is the proper understanding of the place of the word of God within the church of Jesus Christ. That the word of God is that which God has given to the church to equip and to make fit each and every one of us for the task that God has before us. To equip and to make fit each and every one of us for the task that God has before us. Listen to again the passage of scripture that we'll be looking at. Verses 16 and 17 of 2 Timothy. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. And is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That the man of God might be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. And what I want you to see in this passage of scripture is essentially this. That in and through the word of God, God equips the church for every task that God has. Did you notice what the passage says? That the man of God might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Every good work. Well, what are the works that God has given to the church of Jesus Christ? Well, the first thing I want you to understand by way of the works of God, you remember in the gospel of John, that question was asked of Jesus Christ. 
The question was asked as follows. What works may we do that we might work the works of God? And do you remember what the answer of our Lord Jesus Christ was? This is the work of God that you believe on his name. And so that first work of God, if we can put it that way, is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And I ask you the question, have you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ? You see, that's the essential work we might say. Not that we are talking anything or preaching anything by way of a work salvation, but the idea of belief is first and fundamental. You must come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And to understand how you come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, God has given us his word. Isn't that what we saw in this passage of scripture? Second Peter, excuse me, Second uh, Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. What does Paul say to Timothy? You have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise in the salvation. Is the work of God to believe on Jesus Christ? Then the scriptures are the way, are, are the way in which we understand how to believe on Jesus Christ. What else are the works of God that he has given us to do? Well, the works that he has given us to do is certainly to make the gospel known. This work of proclaiming Jesus Christ. And over and over again, when we look on the pages of Scripture, how did the early church make Jesus Christ known? By taking the word of God from the Old Testament and showing how from the Old Testament Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of those prophecies. And so the word of God is sufficient then and equips you and I to make the gospel known in our day. Is the work of God your ongoing sanctification? Then it's to be found in the word of God. You remember that prayer that our Lord Jesus Christ prays in John chapter 17. Sanctify them by thy word. Thy word is truth. And so what I'm saying just by way of an introduction is that everything that God is calling you to, and he is calling you to work, and everything that God is calling you to, he will equip you for through his word. Now what's very interesting in this passage of scripture is that there are specifics as to why this is made possible. And we're going to take a look at that. What we're going to see here today is we're going to see the origin of Scripture. And this is what Paul is conveying to us when he says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That really is referring to the origin of Scripture. We're going to see the profitability of Scripture. And it's profitable for doctrine, correction, instruction, and righteousness, and so on. And then we're going to see uh, the purpose of Scripture. That the man of God. And we'll define that, what we mean by that. We'll, We'll define what Paul means at its first level of application. But then we'll broaden it out. To make sure that we see and understand that in a very broad way, when Paul addresses himself to Timothy as the man of God by way of extension, all of those who name the name of Christ can make can profit from the, uh, from the passage of Scripture that we have here in front of us. So let's take a look then at what we see in this passage of Scripture. And the first thing I want you to be aware of by way of the passage itself and the context in which we find it, if you go back to 2 Timothy in the beginning, 2 Timothy chapter 3 in the beginning, you see that immediately the Apostle Paul is talking about perilous times. Really, he is talking about the days in which we live. Notice again what, what he says here in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. Um, this know that in, uh, also that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of, of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemies, and he goes on and on. And what we see here is a description very much of the day and age in which we live. Now, there's a sense in which the day and age in which Paul lived, these things were true. But how much more do we see them in our day? We look on every side and what do we see? We see this passage of scripture right in front of us. And so Paul was equipping Timothy, as it were, with the word of God for a day and age in which there would be social and moral decline. 
But he also goes on to say that that social and moral decline isn't only, if I can put it this way, out there in the world. There is also a moral decline which takes place in the church. That's what Paul was saying, uh, actually, in verses uh, 8 and following. And actually, uh, we can start with uh, verse 5. Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, from such turn away. For of this sort are they which creep in the houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with divers' lust, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now as Janus and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds, reprobate concerning the faith. But they shall proceed no further, for their folly shall be manifest unto them. And in contrast to the moral decay in society and even creeping into the church, Paul, and again we have to say this with care, but under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul sets himself forth before Timothy. We have to be careful with that. We have to understand that ultimately it's the Lord Jesus Christ who is set forth as a pattern. But Paul sets himself forth before Timothy. And notice what he says here in verse 10. But thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience. And what do we see here? Paul's able to say to Timothy, in contrast to the false teachers, in contrast to corrupt society, I want to be such a pattern before you that you can see in me this pattern of godliness that you should follow. And then to this young pastor, what does he say? He goes on to say, but you, Timothy, you follow that pattern of sound words. You, Timothy, you give attention to doctrine. You, Timothy, you understand that the scriptures are given by the very inspiration of God. So that sets this passage of scripture. So what I'm going to do now is take a look at each of the details here in this passage of scripture. And the first thing I want you to understand is what Paul says about the origin of scripture. And we see this again in verse 16. Notice what Paul says here. In verse 16, Paul says the following, All scripture is given by inspiration of God. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now this is a very on the one hand, interesting, on another hand, very exciting uh, little phrase, this phrase, the inspiration of God. For oftentimes when we hear the word inspiration, we think that inspiration is something that kind of affects us and we say, oh, it was such an inspiring whatever. It was an inspiring uh, speech or it was an inspiring sermon or it was an inspiring uh, song or this and that. But that's really not the direction that this word is going in. Really what Paul is saying in this word is something of a unique word used in the Greek New Testament. Very, Really, it only occurs here in this passage of Scripture. And the idea of this word is that literally the Scriptures are breathed out from God. The idea is that the Scriptures are the breath of God. And so that God exhales, as it were, revelation. God speaks out truth. God has his word come from within and it comes out. That's the idea that's being conveyed here. The scripture finds its origin in God even as, if I can use the illustration, your breath finds its origin in you. This is the idea of the breathing out. All scripture we hear have in some of our translations is God breathed. And that's the concept. The scripture is breathed out by God. And because they are breathed out by God, this gives them their unique and authoritative role within the church of Jesus Christ. Why is it that the scriptures have authority, final authority in the church and not the authority of councils? Because councils are not God-breathed. They may be led, they may be directed, but they're not God-breathed. 
Why is it that the word of God is the final authority uh, uh, over against any other source of authority in the church? Because only the scriptures are breathed out from God. And that gives to the scriptures a very unique place of authority. And it's to those God-breathed scriptures that Paul was saying to Timothy, you give heed to. That Paul was saying to Timothy, it was through those scriptures that you, came, that you became wise unto salvation. Why is it that the word of God is able to bring forth life? Because the very power of God is inherent in his word. I think of those places in scripture and we see them in a number of places where God speaks the word and what he speaks comes into being. Why is that? Because there's divine power in the divine word as the word proceeds from God himself. So there is power consistent with that word. And that's what the apostle Paul is drawing Timothy to. That's what the apostle Paul is drawing us to. And that's what the church of God is to preach throughout all of ages. When the church sees society getting more and more dark, when the church sees error creeping in, how does the church resist these things? Through the God-breathed scriptures. And so you see what we are, where, where we find ourselves, we are drawn back to the word of God. You know, again, ours is a day that oftentimes, and don't think it's only true in our day. Every day had its intelligentsia. Every day, every day, every age had its day in which there were people who thought they knew better than the word of God. It's nothing new to hear scoffers and mockers. Isn't this what Peter tells us? That in the last days, scoffers shall come, saying, where is the promise of his coming? And so again, this idea that there should be intelligent men from a human perspective taking issue with the word of God, that's nothing new. But you, what do you do? Take heed to this God-breathed scripture. Know what it is not only to hear it, but know what it is to have it sink down in your bones. Know what it is to pick up the word of God and say, yes, indeed, thus saith the Lord God has spoken. You see, that's exactly where the Apostle Paul is drawing Timothy. Timothy had a great work in front of him, no doubt. Timothy was the pastor of church. Timothy had, had a great responsibility laid before him. And what does the Apostle Paul do? He doesn't say go to the, go, he, he doesn't say go to the philosophers of, of Greece. He doesn't say go to the great religious uh, leaders of the Jewish nation. He says go to the word of God. And it's the same for us in our day. That we might be that people who when it's all said and done are essentially a people of one book or a people of the Bible. Yes, other books we love and other books we read and other books we make use of, but when it's all said and done, when God speaks in his word, the issue is settled. And so again, this is exactly where the Apostle Paul is drawing Timothy. But notice how he goes on to say this, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. The other thing I want you to be aware of is this, when Paul says all scripture... It's a very important uh, point that we need to make here. Because the question is sometimes brought up, or the issue is sometimes brought up, that when Paul said all scripture, what he was referring to was essentially the Old Testament. And for the most part, this, this, is, this is true. Paul was indeed referring to the Old Testament. Again, we see this from verse 15. Thou hast known the holy scriptures from a youth which are able to make thee wise unto salvation. That would be the Old Testament scriptures. Do you know, I hope you do know and understand this, that the gospel not only can be, but the gospel is to be preached from the Old Testament. You can, like the person of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, on the road to Emmaus, what did he do? He opened the scriptures to them and he showed to them that, that, uh, the, that, that couple. He showed to them in all the things and Moses and the prophets concerning himself. The gospel preached from the Old Testament. But you also have to remember that this phrase, all scripture, 
begins to take on something of a technical uh, kind of a flavor to it, if I can put it that way. And what all scripture begins to mean is essentially this. It means when it's all said and done, the word of God as we have it in our hands. The word of God as we have it in our hands. Why do I say that? Well, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16, the apostle Peter says this about the writings of Paul. He talks about the writings of Paul. And he says, some things are, are hard to be understood. He says, which they who rest the scriptures, the other scriptures, or shall, I'm sorry, well, let me, let me, let's turn there to 2 uh, Peter chapter 3, verse 16, so I get the, uh, the quotation uh, proper here. 2 Peter chapter 3, uh, verse 16. 2 Peter chapter 3, we can start in verse 15. And on account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all of his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which some things are hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, now listen to this, even as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. Do you see what Peter is saying here? I mean, oftentimes when we read this passage of Scripture, we just kind of naturally identify with Peter when he says that Paul has written some things that are hard to be understood. We certainly understand that part, don't we? That there are things that are difficult in the Word of God for us to fully grasp. But did you notice what Peter was doing with the writings of Paul? He put the writings of Paul on the same par of the Old Testament Scriptures. And so when Paul says to Timothy, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, that involves the book, that involves the, the entire Bible as we have it. Another passage of scripture, we find the same thing. And in this case, what we find is that the Apostle Paul is pointing out a passage that is written in the Gospel of Luke. Now, what's interesting about this is that this is early in the life of the church. This is very, very early by way of chronology. You're talking probably somewhere around 60, maybe 65 A.D. And what Paul is saying, well, I'm sorry, in, in 2 Timothy, it's, it's, it's later than that. Uh, but what we're seeing here is that the Apostle Paul identifies the writings of Luke in the Gospel as being equal with the, with the Old Testament. Listen to this passage of Scripture. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 18. For the Scripture saith, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and the laborer is worthy of his reward. Now what's interesting is this, in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4, is the second part of, the, uh, of uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5. But the first part, thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, that is referred to from the Gospel of Luke. And so what we see <clears throat> is a passage from the Gospel of Luke and a passage from the book of Deuteronomy joined together as Scripture in the mind of Paul. You see the Scripture, it's the Word of God as you have it. Do you understand what a blessing this is? And now because the scripture finds its source and its origin in God, there are things that flow from that. That's why the apostle says all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable, useful, valuable. It has a designed end. And notice what we see here by way of what I would call the, uh, the profitability of scripture. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable first for doctrine, then reproof, then correction, then instruction in righteousness. The first thing that the Apostle Paul makes note of here by way of the use of the word of God is that it is profitable for doctrine. 
Doctrine, what is it? Well, I think you know what doctrine is. Doctrine basically is that form of teaching. Doctrine is the bringing together of the truths of the Word of God and putting them together in a systematic fashion in order that they might be understood. You know, the Bible is an amazing book in this regard. Here we have this book that was written over 1,500 years by 40 different authors, I think on three different continents. And yet the message of the book is essentially one. It's all about God's purposes to save sinners through faith in Jesus Christ. He is the promise. He, he is the one who was promised in Genesis chapter 3. And he is the one who fulfills that promise. And that promise comes to full fruition in Revelation chapter 22. All the way through the book, we have this focus on the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. But this this book, with its multiple authors, has truths in it that can be gleaned, truths that can be categorized. And that's what doctrine is. And so when the Apostle Paul says that the Word of God is profitable for doctrine, what he means is essentially this, that there is a sum and substance of teaching that ought to be understood and known. Here was Timothy as a pastor. And Timothy as a pastor, what was he to do? He was to instruct you know, so oftentimes, I have to say this, so oftentimes we come to church and we want to be moved or stirred by preaching. I'm all for that. I want to be moved and stirred in preaching. But there's also a sense in which we have to understand that Scripture is given to instruct the soul, to instruct the mind, to instruct the heart. That there are truths that are, be, are to be affirmed and that there are falsehoods that are to be denied. We see this happening very early in the life of the church. Passages like Acts chapter 2 where, where the, those who were being saved, they joined themselves together to the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread. They joined themselves together to the apostles' doctrine. Paul speaks in the book of Romans about how the Romans, how, how the Romans Christians believed that form of doctrine that was delivered unto them. Well, what was the form of doctrine that was delivered unto them? It would be very much like you see in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 1 through 3. Remember that passage of scripture, Paul describes the gospel. For, for I delivered unto you that which I first received, how that Christ died, was buried, and rose again according to the scriptures. That's the gospel. And it's put in a deliverable form. And the gospel is taken far and wide. And it declares to all men and women, boys and girls everywhere, sinners everywhere, that there is a Savior who died for you. And God put his stamp of approval upon his work when he raised him from the dead the third day, a form of doctrine. And so you see, doctrine then is vitally, vitally important. We can say this in one sense, there would be no church apart from doctrine. There would be no way to, to distinguish uh, uh, truth from error apart from doctrine. And so doctrine, again, as I said before, becomes vitally, vitally important in the life of the Christian. We see this uh, again in, in a number of, uh, of different places by way of understanding uh, what the nature of, uh, of doctrine is in and of itself. And when we talk about how that the scriptures uh, are, are, are to be brought together to produce and to teach doctrine, what it reminds us is this, is that what we can say about the church today and that the church then is that the church had intellectual, not the best way to put it, theological, a better way to put it, theological content which they identified, which they held to, and which they proclaimed. Stop and think of this for a minute. Anybody could say that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified by the Romans. That in and of itself is not a theological statement. It's a historical statement. And the gospel includes the facts of history. 
But to say that Jesus Christ died on the cross for sinners, now you're adding the, the, the needed theology to it. And when you say that Jesus Christ died on the cross for me, now you are bringing home Christian doctrine to the soul. Now the word of God is effective unto salvation. Now the word of God, just like for Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, now it makes you wise unto salvation because now you understand there was a Savior who bled and died for you in order that you might be put right with God. That's doctrine. And so again, the scripture is given for this. The scripture is given for doctrine. Other things that we see by way of this understanding, uh, again, that, that the church uh, had these confessional statements that they were able to make. I think of another passage of scripture, very confessional in its nature, but very, very short. Matter of fact, it may be one of the first confessional statements that we see, although that's not exactly true because we have earlier ones than that. But a very early creedal or confessional statement is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3. No man can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit of God. That statement, Jesus is Lord, is a theological statement. It is a doctrinal truth. It is a doctrine that is derived from the Scriptures. And should you say that Jesus was a great healer, fair enough, but not good enough. If you should say that Jesus was a good teacher, fair enough, but not good enough. You must be able to say with the, with the saints throughout the ages that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is the truth that is gleaned from the scripture. That is what the scripture drives us to. There's where the, that's where the scripture uh, points us to. So again, doctrine shows to us that the church was confessional. And also points out the fact that there is, this, there is to be this real link between what I would call the Christian spiritual life and the Christian's doctrinal life. And as a matter of fact, I would suggest that we don't even make a distinction between the two. But that your life and my life spiritually should be the flowering of our doctrinal understanding. So that doctrine is not like what belongs to, you know, more intellectually minded individuals. Doctrine is that which God uses to develop the soul. The soul grows. Through an awareness of doctrine. That's why Paul says, just, um, just a few pages earlier, Paul says in 1 uh, Timothy chapter 6, uh, verse 3, notice what he says here, just uh, one or two pages over in your Bible. 1 Timothy uh, chapter uh, 6, verse 3, he says this, If any man teach otherwise, and consent not to wholesome words, even to the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, now listen to this, and the doctrine which is according to godliness, the doctrine which is according to godliness, I hope and I pray that each and every one of you, and I mean this sincerely, have something of a desire and something of a zeal to have a firm doctrinal foundation within your thinking. That you're coming to church, and please come, isn't just so that you can meet those who, excuse me, <clears throat> those who you agree with. May you come, you know, may you come for that. But even more importantly, that there is a doctrinal identity that we have one with another. But if that doctrinal identity doesn't lead to godliness, we are misunderstanding what doctrine is all about. What is godliness? Godliness is that beautiful characteristic of piety and holiness that come together in the life of a Christian who is full of the Spirit of God and full of love and devotion for Jesus Christ. 
Godliness, what a wonderful thing. But do you notice what Paul is saying? The doctrine which is according to godliness. Don't allow this to think it, to creep into your mind that I'll be a, a godly Christian and I don't have to be a doctrinal Christian. Or I'll, I'll be a doctrinal Christian and I don't have to worry about being a, a godly Christian. No. You're making a distinction that the scripture doesn't allow. So that the scripture is given for doctrine and doctrine is the lead to godliness. In other words, your sanctification and my sanctification are moved along when we understand the word of God as, as it's given. So again, the word of God is profitable for doctrine. But notice as we go on here, and I'll be a little quicker with the, with the rest of these. Notice as we go on here in verse 16 again. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for reproof. Well, this is a little more difficult, isn't it? Reproof. That which really none of us like to experience. But what is reproof? Reproof is correction. And if I can say this, sometimes reproof is, is criticism. Not criticism in the, in, in, the, in the way that's meant just to destroy, but the critical evaluation of actions and attitudes. And there are times when the Word of God acts as a correction. It acts as a reproof to us. Sometimes it happens on a very personal level. Sometimes we're reading the Word of God. Sometimes maybe we're in prayer and our conscience begins to bring to our, you know, to our memory all the things maybe where we've come short. Maybe the way we interacted with our loved ones. Maybe the way we conducted ourselves at work that day. Maybe the way we were, we were too quick-tempered in the way that we were dealing with others. And sometimes that the Word of God works that way to bring about this conviction. Other times you'll, you'll be reading the Word of God in your personal devotions. And the Word of God, you'll see something, you'll say, I never knew that the Word of God said that. And I was doing that and didn't think anything of it. And the Word of God is there correcting you. But this idea of the Word of God as an instrument of correction is most effectively used in the hand of Jesus Christ. If you go to the book of Revelation, three out of the seven churches are reproved by our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to these passages of Scripture, and you know them all. Revelation chapter... Uh, let me see, Revelation chapter 3, uh, verse 19. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Another passage of scripture, not taken from Revelation, but in Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 26, God says this, And I will make thy tongue cleave to the roof of thy mouth. Listen to this. And thou shalt be dumb, and thou shalt not, and thou shalt not be to them a reprover, for they are a rebellious house. Now what's happening here? This is a very sad point in the history of sinning Israel. This is a very sad point in the history of any professing Christian. None of us by nature are really all that open to reproof or criticism. We kind of have something of an aversion to it. But do you understand that, critic, that, not criticism, that this rebuke and reproof is a blessing from God? And when a people persist in sin, God says that the reproof will no longer be given. I'll read you the passage once again. Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 26. He's speaking to Ezekiel as a prophet. And I will make thy tongue cleave to the roof of thy mouth, that thou shalt be dumb, and shall not be to them a reprover, for they are a rebellious house. Listen, my friends, I know we don't like to be reproved, but thank God when we are. This is that whole idea of the wounds of a friend. And so, again, the Word of God being used as a corrective in our lives. Titus chapter 2, verse 15. These things speak and exhort and rebuke 
It was the same word with all authority. Again, the, the place of the word of God is that it serves as a corrective in the life of the Christian. And as I said before, we, said, we spoke last week about the sins of a nation. You remember that. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any, any people. And whenever we speak about this idea of reproof, you have to understand that reproof is to occur at every level of sin. If sin happens at a personal level, then the scripture is to be used to reprove that sin. If sin happens at a national level, then scripture is to be used to reprove that sin. God's word speaks to the nations. But thirdly, and maybe even most importantly, if sin is found in a church or a denomination, God's word is to be spoken to that church or denomination to shake them off of their sin. This is again, and this is where we see the passages in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 2, verse 4. The sin, uh, and here in, in, in this passage of scripture, what we find is the Lord Jesus Christ taking an issue with what I would call the sins of their devotion. Listen to this passage of scripture. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Here is the reproof of Jesus Christ to the Ephesian church. They left their first love. It was a sin of devotion. Their heart was being stolen away. And the Lord Jesus Christ noticed this. The Lord Jesus Christ could not help but noticing it. Because he was to be the object of their affections. The second uh, reproof that we see is in verse 14 of Revelation chapter 2. But I have a few things against thee. Again, there's the reproof. Because thou hast them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. Here we see two sins being reproved. Number one, a sin of doctrine. You have that doctrine of Balaam, that teaching of Balaam. And number two, that was the sin of morals. Again, you allow that woman, uh, I'm, I'm sorry here, uh, to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit fornication. Thirdly, Revelation chapter 20, verse, uh, I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 2, verse 20. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee. There's the reproof. Because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel who calleth herself a prophetess to teach and to seduce my, my servants who commit fornication and eat things sacrificed unto, the idol, unto idols. And this passage of scripture, the rebuke is threefold. Number one, it was a rebuke about error of, ecclesio- of ecclesiology. There was an allowing of this woman to teach and she should not have had the position of teaching in the church. Number two, there was the sin of doctrine. She was teaching Number three, there was a sin of morals. Again, the committing of fornication. So the Lord Jesus Christ is using the word of God to reprove. That's the purpose of scripture. The purpose of scripture then is not only, again, for doctrine, but for reproof. But going on, the word of God is also for correction. This is kind of an interesting little word here, this word correction. The, word, the Greek word is at the basis of the word that we get for orthodoxy or for the orthodontist. And what does the orthodontist do? He sets straight our teeth, doesn't he? And that's what the word means. The word, again, not reproof. Reproof is showing the failure. Correction is writing the failure, making it right. That's what the word of God does. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed according to thy word? And as I said before, I say this to young and old, the word of God is that which you can build your life on. The word of God is that which, which will provide a, a, a stable foundation 
for all of your future plans. The word of God is that which will guide you into your last days here on earth and into the blessed arms of your father. You see, the word of God is sufficient for all situations and all circumstances of life. The word of God reproving, the word of God correcting. And then we have, lastly, the word of God as instructing in righteousness. Well, this whole idea of instructing in righteousness, again, is very, very vital. Because this is really what we need to understand, that the word of God is, is, is one of the active agents in our sanctification. And your sanctification is so, is so important to you. You understand that, don't you? How do you know that you are truly a child of God? You know that you are truly a child of God, not only by way of the profession of faith that you make, important, not only by way of your presence, hearing the word of God, important, you know that you are a child of God by the fact that the Spirit of God is working sanctification in you. You need your sanctification for that reason. You need to see the marks of the Spirit of God in you as much as I do. I need to see it as well. May the world see the marks of sanctification in this place. You see instruction in righteousness. And it brings us to that very important gospel word, righteousness. Those of you who, who know and understand uh, some, of the, some of the doctrines of their, what are known as the doctrines of grace, you know and you understand that righteousness is essentially that gift of righteousness that God gives through faith in Jesus Christ. It is a gift. It is a donation of righteousness. It is the, the adding to one's account of a righteousness that is not yours. There you are before God in need of righteousness. There you are before God having no means of righteousness. And there is Jesus Christ coming to you and offering to you his own very righteousness. And it's received by the hand of faith faith but righteousness from what you remember last week when we spoke about righteousness exalts a nation remember how we said that righteousness is conformity to a standard of right and that's what the word of god works within you arresting in the glorious righteousness of jesus christ an exercising of that conformity of right that only the spirit of god in conjunction with the word of god can bring out and so i ask you the question when it comes to all these ideas of the, of the profitability of Scripture. Are you profiting from the Scripture this way? Do you have a doctrinal foundation for what you believe? Do you know and you understand those essential truths of the Christian faith? Can you say against all the inroads that the world might make to you by way of what it wants you to believe or not to believe? Can you say, no, that's not what the Bible says? No, this is what the Bible says, doctrine. Are you able in the grace of Jesus Christ to be able to to bear up to reproof that God may give to you or to me? To be able to say that it's good for my soul that someone loves me enough to bring the scriptures to bear to correct my conduct. And then again, once the reproof is given, is there a hardening of the heart? Or is there a giving over to what the word of God says? If this is the direction that the word of God gives, that's the direction I'll go in. And then this instruction in righteousness. But lastly, where we come is, is not only to the, to, to the usefulness of Scripture, again, the fourfold, uh, the fourfold uh, uh, usefulness of Scripture, but what I like to call the profitability of Scripture. Notice as we come down to verse 17 here now, and notice what Paul says, that the man of God might be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works, that the man of God. Well, we need a little bit of explanation here, because technically Paul is certainly referring to Timothy, the young pastor. No two ways about it. There's a sense in which the term man of God is, was almost something of a technical term for a man that was used by God in the Old Testament. The prophet was the man of God. And I believe it was Saul as he was looking for his father's, uh, his father's uh, uh, livestock. He says, is there a man of God here? That's the idea. The man of God was the one who was specifically called by God. 
when we come into the New Testament, what we see is that the man of God is that man that God has ordained and called to preach the word of God. But I would also say this to you, by way of extension, by way of extension, all those who claim the name of Christ are the people of God, men or women, boys or girls. And so as the man of God must make first application of this passage of scripture, you and I, you can make application at, 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 the level of, uh, at, at the level of your Christian experience where you're at. So that in your personal calling in life, you can make use of the word of God and you can be profitable in the situation that God calls you. You can be effective in communicating the gospel. You can in a very gracious way correct and reprove and instruct because the word of God equips you for that. So that's what we see here, that the man of God might be perfect. Now, two words here, again, perfect and thoroughly furnished. It's interesting. They're kind of related to one another. Perfect has this idea of the, the idea of, of, of competency, the idea of being fit for, the idea of whatever the need is. That's what the concept of perfection implies, that the thing that is needed. In other words, for those of you men who, who work, we're not using we're not using our, 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 our pliers as a hammer. In other words, we're using the right tool for the right job. That's kind of the idea there. But the, word, but the scripture goes on also to say this, not only perfect, but thoroughly furnished unto all good works. I think that next phrase is even more wonderful because the word thoroughly furnished, the picture that's, a, that, that's associated with that is that to be thoroughly furnished means to be equipped with everything necessary it was sometimes used of a ship that was prepared for a long journey. And in that ship, everything needed for the journey would be in place so that the ship would be thoroughly laden, thoroughly laid out, thoroughly fitted for everything on the trip, on the, on the journey. Do you understand that the journey that you and I are on, we are equipped for that journey through the word of God? It is the word of God that equips us for the journey that God has called us to. What is God calling you to? Is God calling you to faithfulness in your, in your current situations? Is he calling you to new situations? Is he calling you to take a stand? Is he calling you to come along some, uh, alongside somebody in compassion? Whatever he is calling you to, I'm saying to you, he equips you through the word of God. Now, oftentimes we have to dig to find out what the word of God says to our specific situations. But the point that Paul is making to Timothy is this. Timothy, O man of God, everything you need to be faithful in a dark and fallen world is found in the scriptures, which are able to make thee wise in the salvation if you become wise in the salvation and are profitable for you for doctrine for correction, for reproof, for correction, for, in, for instruction in righteousness, that in every circumstance you find yourself, O Timothy, you will be thoroughly equipped for that circumstance. My brothers and sisters, I, I, I leave you today with Christ and with his word. And as you look to the coming week and to the challenges you may face, please understand that in the word of God are all things necessary for what God will bring you to in this coming week. What, am I, what I am calling you to, brothers and sisters, is to reaffirm or to claim for the first time this love and trust in the holy scriptures which are breathed out from God. It is their unique origin and authority that gives to them everything we need for everything that God calls us to.